Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. And the big story, at least among us Catholics this week, was the uh, declaration from Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione in San Francisco that barred Nancy Pelosi from receiving uh, the Eucharist uh, in that archdiocese. And here to talk about <clears throat> the politics of this, both here and at, at the Vatican, is a, a, a friend of mine, Francis Roca, from the Wall Street Journal, one of the best, if not the best, Vaticanista that there is out there. You can follow him at Francis X Roca on, that's R-O-C-C-A, on, uh, on, on Twitter. And you should already be subscribing to the Wall Street Journal, as I do, in order to, you know, in, in large part to catch up with his reporting on the Vatican, which is hard to get in, uh, in the U.S. anywhere else. Um, Frank, great to have you with us. Thank you, Ed. Always glad to be here. Thank you very much. You know, I, it's been an interesting few days since this news dropped, not just because of the, the, you know, the controversy that got stirred up by this, which, you know, this is not new. We've been having this debate really for a generation as to what the response should be to Catholic politicians who um, support abortion, especially in terms of how it's uh, in terms of how they support it. Um, I think what's more interesting right now is sort of the lack of reaction in, in some quarters. And I got to be honest with you, I was thinking that this was going to be a uh, that there was going to be a stronger reaction to this from other parts of the Catholic Church. Are you surprised that uh, it's been relatively quiet here and there? Well, uh, no, actually, not really, because I think that, first of all, the, the, this, they thrashed this out with regard to Biden, who is, after all, the president. And um, they, the bishops last fall, as you remember, uh, backed away from a collective statement that would have, uh, you know, in some way uh, said, uh, you know, if politicians uh, defy or dissent from church teaching on abortion, they might be denied communion or something. They didn't, they didn't even address the issue explicitly because it was pretty clear that the Pope and the Vatican didn't want them to. And I think that, you know, and that came on the heels of a very friendly meeting between the Pope and the Biden, President Biden at the White House. And now the Pope didn't say at any point, you know, explicitly, uh, well, Biden says he's, <laughs> Biden says the Pope told him you could keep taking communion. Uh, now the Vatican never commented that officially. And as far as we know, never leaked anything, sort of trying to say that wasn't true. So that too, I think if you put all that together, the, 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 it kind of undercuts in, in the minds of many. I'm not saying this is a, this is not a legal judgment or a, or a moral judgment, but in terms of its impact politically, kind of undercuts the the action by by the by the archbishop uh, I, I, for, for many. I think so. They probably think, well, okay, she's just going to keep taking communion just as President Biden does. Well, I think so. And I, you know, there were reports that you know, if, you know, you could. I think I forget who it was that said it. And I, while I think that maybe this is not a great way to approach your um, your standing to receive the Eucharist. I think it was probably very accurate that all it really takes is a good advanced person to check out the churches in the area to figure out which one has a pastor that will be more sympathetic to Nancy Pelosi. And reportedly, she uh, took communion um, over the weekend. I mean, honestly, the issue here is um, more, I think, about... I think it's more specific than Nancy Pelosi, right? Because you know Joe Biden has Joe Biden is a different 
uh, situation in a couple different ways. One is he's the president, and you know, as president, he's also head of state as well as head of, uh, as well as head of government in the United States. And the Vatican has to maintain good relations with heads of state, even when they're doing contradictory things, as we're seeing very clearly with Russia and Ukraine. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, that's not necessarily the true the, the, the case with Nancy Pelosi, but I think she's a, a different case in another way. You have Catholic politicians who try to explain support for abortion as trying to detach their, their religion from their politics. Nancy Pelosi, I think, is maybe one of the few, if not the only uh, politician, Catholic politician of stature who tries to argue that uh, Catholicism teaches her to support abortion. She's made this claim a number of times, and Archbishop Cordiglione has tried several times to, to correct that. Uh, this may make her just a category of her own in this, in this issue. Yeah, although didn't... Um... Biden recently say something about uh, you know quickening and Thomas Aquinas and he may he may this is the other day uh, I, I think yep. shortly after the leaked uh, message so he was sort of arguing that oh well you know maybe the theologians differ about this I, that was that was the, the suggestion I think yep. but also with regard to you're right that the head of state is the head of state and so the Pope is obviously not going to not meet with somebody uh, but. A few weeks before he met with President Biden last fall, he met with, with Pelosi too, and it was a very friendly meeting with photos uh, in the private in, in the Vatican li in the Pope's private library. Which I remember when Benedict uh, was Pope, uh, there was a, at least one occasion that Pelosi came and she attended, I think, a general audience, and then she met privately with him briefly afterwards, and there were no photos. So I mean, what, what I'm saying is now again. That doesn't amount to the Pope saying, I bless you, but in terms of political impact, it's it's certainly a very friendly sign. And and the people in, in the Vatican know who she is and what she, and what's going on. Uh, so I, again, I think that, uh, but I, 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 again, I think, I think that, that that probably undercuts, I, I, again, I, if you're talking about the, 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 how seriously Catholics should take this, that's another matter. I'm not, I'm not, disputing that but i can see why it might undercut it politically no I, I i see that too and i think it's a really good point to raise um i i did like um um oh i can't think of his name now uh, jd flynn's um uh comment about this um it was i was on the day that this got released and basically saying that the big takeaway from this should be every catholic should really be thinking about their fitness to receive the eucharist because you know the bishops take it seriously, and, and so should the rest of us. And which I thought was a very good take on this, and this is an instructive um, moment, I, I think, for all of us. Um, I think it's also important to remember too that this is not excommunication. This is simply she's she can access all the other sacraments. She's certainly welcome to come to, to mass. She's just not supposed to present herself to uh, you know uh, for communion, which makes this more of a Oh, it's not a penal penalty, in other words. It's it's more of an administrative move meant to, I think, really get her back into dialogue with her bishop. Yeah, and I guess it, 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 so the, apparently the bishop, uh, who, where she has a um, country house or a wine, winery, right, in Napa Valley. In Napa Valley, that, yeah. That, pardon me? Yeah, in Napa Valley, which is really nice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that bishop said he would he would he would respect Archbishop Corleone's 
decision. But I would be very surprised if uh, Cardinal Gregory in Washington would do that. Uh, so, and she goes to obviously to church regularly in, in Washington. Uh, so uh, I think, again, the message is that people will take from this, unless they have strong feelings about it already, or, or uh, is, uh, well, the bishops disagree, you know? Right. And, and so, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to be blasé about it. I just think, um, uh, you know, uh, in Archbishop Corleone's letter, uh, he had to go and quote a letter from then Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, um, you know, saying yes, that this kind of thing is appropriate in such cases. But that letter was never published. And, and last year, the, the successor to Cardinal Ratzinger at the head of the doctrinal office told the U.S. bishops that letter wasn't meant to be public. It's not public and it's not the primary document that you should be using for this. So you can over and over again, you can see that the, the, the distance between uh, the Vatican, uh, the, the, this pontificate and, and those bishops who want to be very strong on this. Uh, and so this is a little bit of a constant theme in this pontificate, uh, especially with the U.S. and especially with conservative bishops. And I don't even, I mean, I don't, I think Cornelione is particularly vocal and strong on this. I think a lot of bishops probably are inclined his way, but in the end, they didn't, I don't think they were going to oppose the Vatican. No, and and I think it's interesting too that the Vatican has been low key about this. I mean, I, I did see I did see that, I, but what you're not seeing is, you know, a really public. I, I mean, I I guess we're talking about scale here. It seems like they are satisfied to to allow this to be uh, dealt with among the American bishops, which you know is also a theme of this pontificate. They're very you know they're they're interested in synodality. They they kind of want to boost the the um the the conferences um in dealing with these issues and i i think that some catholics might be wondering if, if there's an issue here that might be a, a bigger problem down the road which is as you mentioned sort of a lack of unity maybe even just sort of a lack of direction here um that just leads to more ambiguity well yeah i mean the the the, the bishop the the, the uh the the bishop, every bishop has this authority, and, and, right. and that's really in canon law, and I don't think the Pope is challenging that. He may, he, I mean, I think it's pretty fair to assume he doesn't agree with this move personally, because he's never done anything like this himself. Uh, and so, and, and he did everything to discourage a kind of national policy or anything that could, could, could resemble that. But but the, but the bishop has this authority. I should say, I mean, this is a, it, 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 although there's a different tone and a, and mindset on this matter in this pontificate than there was under Benedict. That's certainly true. Uh, it's also true that even if you talk to very very conservative people in the Vatican uh, who are you know very much condemn abortion, who think it's a, a high priority, uh, who, who you know. They don't understand the United States. It's very, very peculiar to them uh, because, of course, this doesn't happen in Europe. It doesn't happen in Italy. Uh, you know, pro-choice politicians received communion from Pope Benedict and from Pope uh, Benedict and from Pope John Paul, uh, if in, in Italians and 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 probably no doubt others that I'm not thinking of from other European countries. It's just not. Uh, an issue in the way that it is in the states, 
So I think that's a disconnect that even goes beyond this particular pope. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely the absolutely i can the only explanation that i can find for that is that uh you know the way as we as, as you as we've talked about i think you and i before uh in uh, the uh, european countries it would their abortion policy was was resolved more or less democratically uh you know and so there was a there was a political settlement and people more or less agreed even though no one maybe was totally happy whereas in the u.s we've had 50 years of this situation with Roe versus Wade, where, uh, where, where, where it wasn't allowed to shake out that way politically. And so you have a, 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 a policy that the, that the church would consider ex very extreme, the church here is extreme. I mean, you know, no, basically very few limits on limitations on abortion. And so uh, the, the U.S. bishops are more exercised about it. I, that, that's the only explanation I can, I can find. Yeah, I think that that's a great point, actually. And it's something that I've talked about, you know, if we don't know how the Dobbs case is going to shake out. You know, we're, we had the leaked draft from Samuel Alito. We don't even know if that's actually going to be the final opinion, if it's going to be, a, you know, it might end up being a dissent. You never know how these things are going to shake out until they actually publish the, the decision and the opinions. But assuming that it, it shakes out that way, I think that, and I've been saying this all along, is that it, what it's going to do is kind of going to expose both parties on this as largely unrepresentative <laughs> Of the of the actual American electorate, which I think would probably end up producing through state legislatures and all that, it's something that looks a lot like what's gone on in Europe, right? Which is you know sort of this idea that we're going to have to put up with abortion to some extent, but we're going to have a lot of limitations on it, and um, people need to be reasonable about it. That I think will take some of the pressure off the bishops, but of course we're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah, no, certainly not. I guess the one one question about Cordelione matter, and, and this is that will other bishops follow suit? Maybe not necessarily only with the most famous figures like Pelosi and Biden, but with other, I mean, you know, it's happened in the past. There have individual bishops who have either privately or publicly said that certain politicians shouldn't receive communion because of this matter. Um, but maybe more of them will start doing it. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe Archbishop Cordelione is a, is, a, is a leading figure. Uh, he's very prominent now. He's taken on a very, very uh, important uh, person. So, you know, will a, will a, a bishop in some city who, where the congressman is a Catholic who, you know, who, who supports abortion rights, maybe they'll, he'll say, well, all right, I'm going to take my lead from Corleone. That would be interesting. I don't know how much effect it will have politically. Uh, I don't know what you think. I don't know if sure. anybody will be swayed. Um, sorry. I, no, 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 no. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I stepped on you just a little bit there, but I'm not really sure. I don't really know how this shakes out politically. And of course, you've got uh, Cordiglione, who's insisting that this isn't political, it's pastoral. Um, he was on EWTN last night making this ma making the argument as well. And um, but I mean, it's it's anything involving a politician is going to be political, whether or not you intended that way. And And I'm not sure that this is really going to break out of the the paradigms, even at the parish level i mean you know i've been catholic for a very long time i've been a member of several different parishes and i think the most remarkable aspect of parish life is really how politically um uh what's what's the word i'm looking for um diverse <laughs> catholic parishes are you have very liberal people sitting next to very conservative people and all the flavors in between and 
I think that we're kind of used to this, right? I mean, what, what's your what's your sense on that? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't have the latest numbers, but I mean, they, they always say that, uh, you know, self-identified Catholics is one thing, and then, uh, you know, mass attending Catholics are, are, are another. True. That So it's sort of like between, like, you know, registered or... Uh, eligible, you know, every, all all potential voters and maybe registered voters, or something like that. But uh, the, so that uh, you know that the the people who actually go to mass frequently tend to oppose abortion by you know a significant margin, although it's not 100 percent, but it's more than you know it's more than half. I mean, certainly. Uh, that it, whereas the self-identified Catholics just mirror the U.S. population as a whole. I think on on, on these points. But um, so, but again, though, with the fact that the bishop, I mean, in other words. If you're a Catholic in the pew or or not, and you vote and you vote for a congressman or don't, uh, you know, because of the uh, abortion issue, does it make any difference to you that the bishop then said that person can't take communion? Probably not, because I mean, if you care, I mean, if you don't care about the issue, then you know, I. I, I so anyway, but I, I understand the point is not. I mean, I, I, the point is not to try to uh, shift that. So certainly in San Francisco, I don't think that. Archbishop Cordelione thinks that his doing this is going to cause Nancy Pelosi to lose her seat, but I, no. but I think, that, but 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 I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess he want, he's saying, you know, this, the, the, for him, it's just impossible, it's just unsustainable, this contradiction, uh, and, and, he, and, and he, so you know, and, and so again, I just wonder if other if other people, whatever the consequences politically, I wonder. I, I suppose I'm just thinking out here, but I suppose in the long run. If a lot of bishops started becoming, and even individual priests, because by the way, I, I, I years ago I talked to a, a priest in New Hampshire. Uh, he was a priest in New Hampshire, and during the primaries there in, in 2004, they told him that uh, John Kerry was going to come to mass, and he said, "Okay, but you know, I won't give him communion." And they said, "That's all right." And then he didn't present himself for communion. And they actually had a nice conversation afterwards. He said it was very amicable the whole thing. Uh, they avoided any kind of a scene, obviously. But so that was an individual priest making the call. So it's not just bishops, right? But so if I could, I maybe you could foresee a situation where bishops and priests become more rigorous about this, uh, and um, maybe you would have fewer uh, pro-choice politicians saying, uh, "Well, I'm a Catholic, and that's fine." And 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 maybe it would maybe it would kind of be maybe it would kind of force a kind of shakeout. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I just think there's so. I mean, at the moment, there's just a, there. There are so many bishops and priests who, who won't, who wouldn't do that. That you could always find a way to, right? That I think. No, I think you're right about that. And <clears throat> and again, I think that the you know the average American voter and the average Catholic voter is probably animated by other things when it comes to the ballot box. Anyway, um, I mean, certainly there are those who are primarily animated by abortion. They're on both sides of the aisle, though. Yeah. And for most voters, they're going to vote pocketbook first. And that's what we're seeing. It's what we see cycle after cycle. I mean, James Carville said it in 1992, it's the economy, stupid. And so I, I tend to take Cordiglione at his word because I don't think he's looking to depose Nancy Pelosi from her seat in Congress. But I do think that a lot of these bishops get questioned about how Nancy Pelosi, especially maybe Pelosi again, because of the the specific argument that she makes, but other Catholic politicians are supporting abortion. They probably have to deal with that question an awful lot. And he probably just got tired of it um, and, and decided, you know, that's, that's too glib. 
He's been working on the issue for years. He's been trying to reach out to her. She's apparently stopped taking his calls. And apparently he felt that there was a, a, another step necessary. Whether it actually leads to any any long-lasting change is is certainly an open question. I, I know it's intended at least ostensibly to get Pelosi to change, to get her to recognize... Um, that she's out of step with the with Catholic teachings to repent and uh, to atone. But I think that the likelihood of that is probably slim. We all have hope, but <laughs> so I don't think the politics are really going to change, Frank. I mean, that's sort of, I think you're right about that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I was thinking again, I was talking to somebody who covers Biden in the white house and who said, you know, and maybe this is obvious, but it wasn't really obvious to me, but he really, 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 really hates this. He really, really hates this issue. He hates being asked about it. He hates it when the bishops say that he shouldn't take communion and so forth. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, I don't know about uh, Nancy Pelosi, but I imagine she really doesn't like it either. To the extent that you uh, adopt, uh, I mean, I'm not, let's assume she's entirely sincere, uh, all the more so. I mean, if, if yeah. okay, being a Catholic is part of her identity, uh well it's one thing if you know people are arguing and so forth but if your bishop says you can't take communion um even though you can find easily find priests who will tell you oh you won't be silly that's fine uh that is i, sh I mean i'm not i wouldn't i don't know if we should dismiss how much that might uh prey on her mind in the sense that uh if, if only because it it, it 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 tarnishes that that aspect of her persona. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not suggesting he's insincere. I'm just saying. So if you're Joe right. you're, you're right. Biden, part of the way you present yourself is that I'm a Catholic and that's part of my identity. You know, okay, fine. Uh, so it's 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 harder to do that if a bishop, if your own bishop is saying you are not worthy of receiving the sacrament. It's a lot harder to do that. Uh, you know, in other, uh, or to put it in another way, uh, somebody was saying, we were thinking, uh, someone, we were talking and somebody was saying, you know, I think the bishops did in a sense succeed last year in making this an issue that doesn't go away in the sense that if you think Biden Catholic, it kind of immediately entails for many people, I think, may, whereas it didn't before, oh yeah, but there's that abortion problem. You know what I'm saying? Yep. It's not a problem. It's not an unproblematic Catholic identity. Like, so Jimmy Carter is an evangelical Christian. That's just part of his image. Okay, that's it. But with Biden, if they, oh yeah, he's a Catholic, and then there's that asterisk now in many minds. Maybe they succeeded in doing that. So again, we're we're falling back into politics again. Not, right. Not, but but uh, yeah. Sorry. Well, no. I mean, that's great. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about, and of course. Uh, you're you're covering the Vatican. There's politics involved there. What's coming up next for you at the Wall Street Journal and in, in, in your Vatican reporting? Uh, well, there's a lot going on. There's a trial that's going on, of course. Uh, that never we don't know when it's going to end. It's finally there were for months where it was uh, there were just uh, uh, procedural moves and attempts to you know have the trial thrown out and so forth. And now they're actually getting into testimonies. So that's colorful. So it's very confusing. Their Pope is uh, the Pope, despite his. Uh, his great difficulty walking, or at least standing up, uh, is, in, is is planning to take uh, two big trips uh, soon uh, in early July to Africa, to the Democratic Republic of Congo, and to South Sudan, and in late July to Canada, uh, which will be a very dramatic trip, I think, uh, especially as I say, because if he's if he's in great physical uh, discomfort or, or pain, uh, and so those are some those are some of the things that are happening. 
And uh, are you going to go on the uh, Canada trip by any chance? I, I, I hope so. I think I think that I think that would be an interesting trip to go on. Yes, I think it'd be an interesting trip because there's he's just issued an apology for you know the um, treatment of indigenous um, peoples in Canada. This is a big, huge issue right now in Canada, and and I think that that's going to make it a very uh, compelling uh, story to follow when when he when he comes to Canada. I, th I think people in the U.S. maybe aren't as quite as aware of it as as they should be. But, you know, obviously he's if he's coming to Canada, he's going to be shed, he's going to be shedding light on that as just as a function of that, the, the apology for that. Uh, and I think that that's a story that's going to get more traction when he does when he does do oh. that. Oh, absolutely. I think, for, first of all, that's the that is the reason he's going, which is makes this trip unique, I think. I, 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 it is. It is the reason it makes this it makes this trip unique because he's not going for other reasons. He's going uh, for that reason. Which is uh, which is something, and also uh, there's a U.S. dimension to this. That uh, last year, after they uh, discovered apparent, some apparent mass graves uh, at one of the sites of these schools that were run for 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 indigenous uh, people, indigenous young people, um, after this discovery was made, the Department of the Interior in the U.S. Uh, started a study of similar schools in the U.S., many of which were run by the Catholic Church. So, yeah, the, 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 this, the, this, 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 uh, this is a this is a potentially big deal, not only for Canada but also for the United States. Well, that's one reason among many, by the way, that you should be following Frank on Twitter at Francis X Rocca R O C C A uh, on Twitter. And online.wsj.com is the website, obviously, for the Wall Street Journal, which everybody should know by this point in time. Uh, so keep an eye there. Uh, keep an eye on Frank's excellent reporting from the Vatican. And again, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Ed. Thanks a lot. See you later. All right. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up right next. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. I am really pleased to introduce Pete Peterson, who's the Dean of Pepperdine University's School of Public Policy. Uh, he's a good friend and colleague of Bruce Hershenson, one of my political heroes, and here to discuss that, as well as Bruce Hershenson's final book, A Profile of Hong Kong During Times Past, Times Current, and Its Quest of a Future Maintaining Hong Kong's Liberty. Uh, a book which is just out, and you can get right now, uh, Bruce Hershenson's final final book. Uh, Pete, so good to uh, have you with us. Thank you so much. I know you're a busy man, and you're, you're jumping in in the middle of uh, doing some other things here. Well, thanks so much. I'm so glad that you're. Uh, we're, we get to talk about uh, our, our friend in common, Bruce Hershenson. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I, am, I, I, I would hope that I could be described as such. I had... Um, I, I had a, a remarkable interview with the man, and we, we corresponded a little bit uh, just before and after that. And I grew up watching Bruce Hershenson on television, you know, in Los Angeles, and he had these great debates on ABC, the local ABC affiliate with John Tunney, former Senator John Tunney. Sure. Uh, with whom he was friends for, for decades. That's um, right. And, I, I mean, first off... I, I liked his politics. Obviously, I probably disagreed most, uh, mostly with uh, what John Tunney had to say, but um, but I was always struck by the cordiality, the courtliness uh, of both men. I mean, it was really remarkable, really hearkening back to when politics uh, and debate were uh, a lot more honorable. 
<laughs> than they turned out yeah. to be. And yeah. uh, but but still an inspiration. Bruce Hirschenson was an inspiration. Let me tell you something. One of the one of the greatest things of this job, and one of its scariest, is when you get a chance to interview somebody who is an was one of your idols, and you yeah. cross your fingers, and you cross your, your fingers, and you're not <laughs> you're not going to embarrass yourself, or or worse yet, find yeah. out that you were completely wrong about the person. That's right. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, Bruce was one of those people. You know, I first met Bruce probably back in 2005. Uh, when I went to the graduate school of Pepperdine and as somebody who had come out to Pepperdine from the Northeast, I frankly didn't know a lot about Bruce Hershenson. and I didn't know this history. All I knew him was one who was extremely well-versed in international relations and national security issues. But as I got to know him over the years, and then when I became Dean, we had him back to speak a number of times on campus at the graduate school. Um, He's, he's a mensch. He was brilliant. He was uh, so kind to our students, not only as a, as a beloved professor, but as a mentor for students well into their careers. Uh, he was a relationship builder uh, who helped our students well into their careers after graduating from the school. So really a what you see is what you got kind of person. A true gentleman, really, honestly, yes. in, in every, yes. every sense of the word, a true gentleman. Yeah, no, that's right. And as you say, his ability to engage with others on the other side of the political aisle, he had a very successful uh, run here in, in L.A. media. Um, but at the same time, he set an example for what could be possible with building friendships across the aisle, but at the same time, holding true to your principles. He never wavered on his commitment to liberty um, and, and challenging uh, bad policy. But at the same time, he never made it personal. He always looked to build uh, build relationships. You know, I, I honestly think that um, this was um, a, a life that has that really needs more attention. I know we're going to talk about his book, right? Because I mean, he yeah. was always about he was really always about the issues. He was really always about policy. Uh, you know, he, I don't think that he was that into electoral politics. I don't, th and I know that you know just from talking with him the, in the brief period of time I had, that the you know I you know I, identity and uh, identity is not the right word, but sort of the tribalism, I guess, of I, of politics didn't really interest him. Um, he no. was interested in policy, um, yeah. and I think in in a way that means that he is not going to necessarily get his full due as to his yeah. impact as to as to what we should learn from the remarkable life of Bruce Hershenson. I think I think that's true although I think his last book and I think the particular thing that he was always committed to and a true partisan uh, was on issues of liberty and freedom. I mean he was he was a true freedom fighter right uh to see him in the classroom uh on the issues that he engaged in professionally uh he was somebody that you're right he was not involved really or not interested so much in uh tribal politics but he was deeply involved in uh promoting and defending american exceptionalism and the ideas that ideas have consequences and the importance of freedom and liberty and whenever he saw that under threat uh, he was he would have he would be your worst enemy. And uh, again, obviously, uh, for this book um, that we're talking about his last book, which was one of several he wrote uh, in the same 
uh, subject matter. I think he's actually going to be um, not redeemed from this, but but new attention will be paid because yeah. he's proving himself to be quite prophetic in the issues, the global issues and the threats to liberty and freedom that are coming from certain parts of the globe. Right. It's important to remember that all of this was was written before the invasion of Ukraine, for instance, and and uh, and, and how that's uh, definitely going to tip against Taiwan, which comes up in this book. Before we get That's to right. the, before we get to that, though, I mean, uh, we should mention too, and just again, just to, if you're not watching on video, if you're listening to this on on a download, I'm speaking with Pete Peterson, Dean of Pepperdine University's School of Public Policy, and and Pete actually organized um, Bruce Hershenson's final public appearance, which was a roundtable discussion on this topic, China and Hong Kong. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about that event and about what the um how how that discussion unfolded i'm so glad you asked that question about his last um trip to campus it was about this set of issues certainly one of many times he's spoken on china uh, on our campus but the last one was was specifically about hong kong and at the time uh, hong kong was being seen as increasingly under threat from mainland china obviously we now live in the in the wake of the decisions and the uh, the attacks that have come from mainland China into Hong Kong and essentially the subjugation of a once free region. But what is so powerful about Bruce and certainly a fit for our graduate program is he knows the history so well. And he doesn't just know the history. He knows chapter and verse of uh, international agreements uh, that he can cite to show that we have we have uh, that China was essentially going back on agreements that they signed in this case with the UK uh, on the status of Great Britain. And what was so interesting about that particular conversation is we do have graduate students from China. And so in this case, there were graduate students who for the first time uh, had been told were being told the truth, uh, but had been taught that the that Hong Kong was always going to be a a possession of China, that that agreement for the with the UK was really uh, conditional and that the UK had broken those conditions of that agreement. And Bruce just went through chapter and verse, but again, not confrontationally, just very calmly and securely telling the true history of, of the China-Hong Kong relationship. And it was an utterly eye-opening experience for these Chinese students. You know, Pete, I, I got to tell you, the book itself is an utterly eye-opening experience for me because this is not a, a subject matter on which I'm terribly well-versed, especially in terms of the history of Hong Kong and and you know, certainly the present. I would say that I've, you know, I've been aware and following the story since the, the treaty that was originally going to turn you know, back over to China in 1997, what the terms of that agreement were and all that. That I, that I pretty much knew about, but... I honestly did not realize that Hong Kong was a relatively new invention. It really didn't, it, it, it wasn't really even a, um, a, an entity until the British built it, which I actually was not aware of. I, I thought it was a, um, a relic of British colonialism, which, I mean, you can make an argument that that's the case. But I, yeah. but I was not aware that basically the British built Hong Kong until I read the first chapter of uh, A Profile of Hong Kong by Bruce Hershenson. Yeah, no, that's right. And again, that that history and and I think you put that exactly right, Ed, that, you know, it, it could be seen as part of British colonial history, but it was such a hands off relationship in so many ways that it really was created to be 
an, uh, an outpost of freedom uh, and, and free markets uh, that, that while there certainly were benefits for uh, the UK in its creation, it was really seen as being uh, the creating of its own self-governing entity. Right. And I have to tell you, I, 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 you know, one of the things that you find out about this, of course, is that Bruce was working on this book when, when he passed away. And I, I think that the, the editors made the correct call here, which was to basically, with the exception of just some copy editing, to leave it in the form that he would, that he last had it in and publish it that right. way. And, um, I gotta tell you, I, I, I don't read too many history books where I actually laugh out loud at, at some passages. And I did with I did with this one when he was dis yeah. <laughs> discussing how everybody was terribly unhappy. Both British and both uh, you know, Great Britain at the time and, and yeah. China were terribly unhappy with their negotiators. Um, and uh, one of them ended up here in Texas. The, the, the British negotiator ended up here in Texas, which, you know, I actually think yeah. is a it was a promotion, but clearly it wasn't intended that way. <laughs> Well, but again, that's that's Bruce, right? It, 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 that's who Bruce was in person. That you could not, and I remember his that that last presentation that he made. Uh, you know, he wasn't getting along, getting around that well, but his mind was just so dead on, and that velvet tone. I mean, he was kind of like, you know, Mel Torme was the velvet. Yes, he was, kind of like a very, he was very similar, kind of just so smooth in his talking and delivery, but also at the same time, just such a dry sense of humor and the ability to to deliver very hard truths but in a way both in his uh, the tenor of his voice but also just in the way that he framed things i mean he was such a an amazing uh intellect and way that he framed uh very difficult uh and in some cases complex discussions to boil them down to its essence uh that's what he's done in the book for sure. and that's what he did in person and and, and uh, Pete Peterson, I think you have I think you have landed on the most accurate description, at least in terms of what my perspective is of of your friend Bruce Hershenson. He is the Mel Torme of politics and history, and I think and I think he would really have appreciated that. Oh, I think it would have too. At least I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, very much. Now, there's I mean, there's lots of great nuggets in this. I, I just want to touch on one more before we get to the Taiwan thing. And I know I'm, I'm mindful of your time here because I know you're yeah, yeah. In, in, the, in the little things, but there's a great passage in here that of, of which I was completely unaware, which was what happened in Hong Kong at the end of World War II. And I mean, when I, when I mean the end, I mean literally the last days of World War II and how yeah. it was a series of fortuitous events that started actually before the fall of Hong Kong in the first place that allowed uh, the United Kingdom to hold on to it. That is a stirring story. And I am, you know, I'm sort of a, I'm sort of a history buff and I've read a lot about World War II in both the theater, both theaters, Pacific and, and European. I've never heard that story before. And he tells it so well. He does. And again, it shows, and there were several stories like this around the globe at the conclusion of World War II, where you see nations that really could have gone one way or the other. Some went under the Iron Curtain and others like Hong Kong, uh, because of the UK's both ingenuity and frankly, passion for wanting to defend a, a piece of real estate in that part of the world, uh, defended and protected Hong Kong to keep it separate. And so um, that really is so important, especially as it relates to today's discussions and debates that I, I don't know, I mean, I travel in a few policy circles, it seems like the overtaking of Hong Kong by China 
aside from the protests, is like we've lost track of that story. Right. And, and really what we're seeing is those conditions that were set by the UK, the agreements that were set at the conclusion of World War II, have really been completely walked back, which is, indic I think, indicative of many ways of, of who China is and how they operate, but really do need to be revisited uh, for anyone who cares about the future of freedom and liberty. Well, and, and I think when you're reading a profile of Hong Kong here by Bruce Hershenson, and I, I like to mention title and author a lot because we want to promote the book. And it's not yes. a, it is not a tough read, folks. This is, this is a, fairly, uh, a fairly quick and extremely entertaining read. But I think when you, when you see this, what you're also seeing, it certainly is who China is and, and, Bruce had very uh, no illusions about who China was starting in 1949, uh, right. and, and you get that out of the book. But I think it's also indicative of who we've become, and it's the type of mm -hmm. thing that Bruce was pushing back against for you know 50 years. I mean, this is yeah. I mean it's it's sort of this. Uh, idea that uh, a sort of a moral relativist position, you know, that, yeah. um, that you know, we, we saw this in vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the Soviet Union in the, the 70s and 80s from the left. Yes. We're yes. seeing it now with China, right? The same thing. Absolutely. And I know what Bruce would say is that it's actually worse now, given the longstanding um, economic relationships that we have engaged ourselves with with China. Um I think it's fair to say that the understanding of the Soviet Union as as an enemy state was one that was long held and understood, but we didn't really have any direct other engagements with the Soviet Union. China is a place that in some ways belied uh, the often uttered phrase by some that uh, by engaging with them economically, they would uh, the freedom would in generally ensue politically. And of course, uh, that has not happened. And so I know that especially his passion around Taiwan and Hong Kong was in many ways uh, a reflection on his great concern for China and the fact that uh, he really believed till his last day that America was just not taking China seriously enough. Well, that brings us to the end of the book, and I don't want to necessarily give away the plot points here because I want people to buy yep. the book. Again, oh, a, prof yeah. a profile of Hong Kong by Bruce Hershenson. You definitely want to be uh, purchasing that. But Taiwan now is, is I think, more in the focus of American policymakers and Americans in general, I think, because of what's going on in Ukraine. Because yes. I think we have been woken up from a sort of 30-year stupor about yeah. you know you know about end of history and all the rest of this nonsense that's right and right. you know clearly vladimir putin is a um as a reckless Im russian imperialist who is determined to expand the russian empire by force and that yep. leads us right back to china and taiwan yep. where we have made a lot of security guarantees and i think we're also sending a lot of signals and this is not necessarily just from one party we're sending a lot of signals that maybe we're not going to take that very seriously. Um, yep. What's at risk in Taiwan and how at risk is Taiwan at this particular moment in time? Well, certainly what Bruce thought, and I think what's fair to say uh, is true um, today that others have said is that it's very much what Neil Ferguson calls um, Cold War II. 
we either understand our relationship vis-a-vis -vis China in that context, or we continue to walk down this road where we believe at some point China is suddenly going to uh, turn around. And again, what was important for Bruce in telling the Hong Kong story was also to tell the China story, which is to say, this is, these are, this is who you're dealing with. This is how they consider freedom. Uh, this is how they think about free markets. Uh, they will squash them wherever present. And so Taiwan just becomes kind of the, uh, if you will, and uh, this probably is, uh, you know, not, not the right, not the right historical equivalence uh, or reference, but it's kind of like a domino theory that's happening uh, in in the South Pacific. Yep. Uh, my father lives in Australia and in the northern part of Australia on the coast, and he's been telling me for years what China has been doing, working its way through New Guinea and Fiji and the South Pacific. Uh, this whole Belt and Road Initiative, which yes. is essentially an investment program that the Chinese have engaged in order to buy in, buy favor, and then take power in places throughout the world. Uh, that is certainly the case with 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 Taiwan and and of a stake where Taiwan knows our engagement with China uh, uh, or Taiwan knows our uh, China knows our engagement with Taiwan and sees that as a way of testing uh, how much uh, we can be trusted as an ally, even if there is no formal military agreement, <clears throat> this what's been called strategic ambiguity um, has obviously come apart in the Ukraine. And one wonders now if it's uh, going to be tested now uh, in, ta in Taiwan. You know, I I'm glad you brought up Belt and Road Initiative. Because I think that yeah. this is something that Americans really have really, it's really flown under the radar. And I mean, this is part of, and there's all sorts of different, there's all sorts of different threads that you can un unravel with this. You know, this week, the um, NBC News went back and revisited the Hunter Biden laptop story. And one of his big partners in China was a guy who was known as the Belt and Road billionaire, uh, yeah. Yi, Yi Jianming. And yeah. this is a guy who was very tied into the Belt and Road Initiative Um that very tied into the um, to the Xi Jinping regime, and yeah. and so you've got the, you've already got these connections into American politics. But I, I, it, for instance, you're talking about the Pacific Rim and and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think it was a couple of months ago that uh, the Solomon Islands was it the Solomon yes, Islands that that's uh, right. the yeah Solomon Islands went yep. I mean, that's that's striking. I mean, we we fought well, and bled and died for the Solomon Islands, you know, I know but, and, and even so, I mean, it was my my dad who told me two years ago, he said, Pete, you know, uh, China is building a deep water port in Jamaica. And I said, no, that's not true. We, we, we would have been told by our mainstream media if they were building a deep water port there. Well, sure enough, I had to look it up. And through Australian news sources, I found China as part of this Belt Road Initiative is indeed attempting to build a deep water port in Jamaica that will also take their massive new aircraft carriers. So, I mean, we had a whole Cuban missile crisis over a part of the world, uh, but here's China coming in under the guise of, of uh, One Belt, Run, One Road, and is engaging in a lot of different parts of the world that, uh, that frankly, we, as you say, Ed, we are just not fully understanding, but the goals are always in one direction to establish power bases and oftentimes uh, to take uh, control or at least influence in governments and then to use them as possible military bases. Uh, it needs to be deeply concerning to all Americans and I know it was to Bruce. 
And again, his final book, A Profile of Hong Kong by Bruce Hershenson, is available right now. And when what you what you get when you're looking at this is, of course, you get a profile of Hong Kong, and, it, and there's a lot of great information about Hong Kong. But what you're really getting is a reflection of China in this, yes. and the and the risks that China presents to us, to the free world. Uh, and sort of a wake-up call, and it's sort of Bruce Hershenson's valediction, if you will, is to watch China, and this book gives you lots of reasons to do that. Um, Pete Peterson, I know we're going to have to let you go here in just a minute, but I, I want to beg you for just one more indulgence. If you could give us just some quick, um, some quick anecdote about Bruce Hershenson that you think uh, just would either if nothing else, entertain us, but maybe maybe shed a little light on, in, into how you see, how you saw Bruce. So um, maybe again, uh, out of the files of what you see is what you get with Bruce. Um, my last time seeing him at his apartment, and he kept an apartment uh, in Hollywood, um, was a couple of years before he died, and uh, went to visit him there. Um, and we were talking about maybe going out to eat, going to a restaurant. He goes, no, 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 I've, I've already taken, you know, I've already taken care of the lunch preparations. Well, sure enough, within about 15 minutes, uh, three Domino's pizzas show up. <laughs> and we're sitting there, you know, just in his living room with these three Domino's pizzas. And you just stare at the walls, which were his, his apartment was a museum. And thankfully, Pepperdine, uh, because of our relationship with Bruce, we are the keeper of his papers. So we are oh, essentially great. the archives of all his papers. So if this goes out to anyone, and I, I agree with you, Matt, if somebody wanted to write the biography or the history of Bruce Hershenson, please reach out to me because we are the keeper uh, of his papers. Um, it was just, uh, you know, an amazing conversation, but just held over the simplest of of foods, but that's who Bruce was. I mean, he just was a very a simple but elegant person. I mean, you see, we were still meeting with him in a very kind of casual meeting over pizza, but he had a jacket, a tie with cufflinks on. He was an avid cufflink collector. Um, and again, just um, just incredible. I'll just say the second story because it, it just popped into my head. Um, one of the last presentations he gave was um, on the uh, 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. And he had done mm. an amazing documentary of the Kennedy assassination. I mean, he, this was somebody who saved, who served in White Houses of both parties, back to your point about not really caring about the tribalism. And the, uh, he did a, a documentary on that and showed that documentary um, and finished uh, in talking about the movie itself and, and what it was based on and broken up into tears just about his respect and love for for uh, President Kennedy. Um, but again, it, it was somebody he was just fierce, at the same time, he was fiercely loyal to Richard Nixon. And some of the things that went down at the Nixon Library uh, about five or six years ago, uh, he just was adamant about um, just calling that out and just saying, you're not respecting President Nixon in the way you should be respected. So just a, a fiercely loyal to friends, um, but also just a very elegant intellectual and uh, again, a great friend, a great friend. Well, Pete Peterson, um, I wanna thank you for sharing some of, uh, of, of your experiences with Bruce Hershenson and 
And like I said at the beginning, sometimes you're you're a little worried about whether or not uh, you know your your idol has feet of clay or whatever. Uh, never right. never the case with Bruce Hershenson. What a right. what a fine gentleman. Um, I think we're going to miss him more and more and more as time goes on because he was a rare breed indeed. Don't forget to buy the book, A Profile yep. of Hong Kong by Bruce Hershenson. And Pete, where can people find you? I mean, do you have any uh, uh, links that you can throw out so people can find you at Pepperdine? Sure, I'm at Pepperdine, and, and the website there is uh, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu, and uh, you can find my profile and some of the work we're doing uh, in Malibu there. Public, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty prosaic, right? Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu, and uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's straightforward, and, and I think that that reflects well on you and on Pepperdine, and I really want to thank you for a, a fantastic conversation today. Thanks so much, Ed. Really appreciate it. Stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show coming up right after this. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Special counsel John Durham's prosecution of former Hillary Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman has uncovered how her 2016 presidential campaign shopped around an unfounded allegation as fact and turned it into the worst dirty trick since Watergate. Witnesses testified that Sussman shopped the false allegation of a link between the Trump Organization and Russia-controlled Alpha Bank to the CIA and the FBI. In both cases, Sussman falsely claimed not to be working for a political candidate. Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook testified that Hillary herself approved the decision to leak the allegation to the media. The Washington Post and the New York Times won Pulitzers for their breathless reporting on the Russia collusion fallacy. Neither paper has gone out of their way to report on its unraveling. This dirty trick has torn our country apart and set off a wave of political hysteria not seen since the Red Scare. Accountability should come to those at the highest levels of both politics and the media. I'm Ed Morrissey.